0: more. morning. Got several uh, visitors in the audience. Really appreciate you being here this morning. Uh, if you want to, you can open up to Exodus the twentieth chapter. We're going to get there in just uh, one moment. But a couple of housekeeping notes as uh, as we need to go. Remember, first Sunday in November, the Lord's Supper will come before the contribution, the giving. So if you're not normally here by that time be here by that time, and tell your friends, and tell your family, and tell everybody, be here by that time. Uh, that's one. Two, I've been asked a couple times if I am moving away. I am not moving away. Uh, I'd just like to set that record straight. I'm not going anywhere, so uh, not. you ain't got to worry about that. Thirdly, let's get started. Uh, I just wanted to get that out there. All right, so... We've been talking this year about being holy as God is holy. And this quarter we've been talking about being holy in our worship. And we're just saying, let us come into his house and worship Christ the Lord, which we are doing. And as we think about that, I want you to think for a second about the most demanding person you know. They require a lot out of you. Maybe it's a teacher. Uh, one of the kids was downstairs talking earlier today about how their teacher gave him some kind of assignment and it was pretty ridiculous to which I would usually agree with that. It requires when you think about something or someone that is demanding oh Miriam Webster, he says or she says about I don't even know if Miriam is a man or a woman uh, but two men there we go. there see shows what I know but old Miriam Webster, They say it requiring much time, attention, or effort. Now maybe you've got a better idea of the person that is the most demanding in your life. That they require the most attention. They require the most effort in your life. And that's not always a bad thing, is it? When we think about somebody being demanding, sometimes we think of, man, somebody is requiring so much, or maybe we might even say too much of me. And I would like to suggest this morning that God is the most demanding person you know. We just saw that when it comes to our worship, when we go into His house and we turn it into what we want, a business, Or we turn it into what we want, our own church. He comes in and He overthrows that. He demands so much. And I want you to notice that that is not new in Jesus Christ. That God has been demanding that things be done just the way He wants it. It's been that way all along. You go back to the Law of Moses. And most people that don't even know their Bibles they have heard of the Ten Commandments. I want you to know how the Ten Commandments start there in Exodus 20. They start with God saying in verse 1, or verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. First off, know who I am. I brought you out of slavery. Now 2, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Some of your translation may have a footnote that say, besides me. That's the point. It's literally before me. You've got no one in our hierarchy that is before me. I am top on your priority list. And don't you dare, verse 4, don't you make any carved image for yourself. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Don't you make any carved image. And notice how specific he is. Anything in the heavens. Stars, the sun, the moon. Anything on the earth. Animals, men. And anything under the earth. Dragons, whales, fish. You name it. Notice how specific that is. Heaven, earth, and below the earth. Don't you dare be making anything that specific. There's no one before me. And you say, what in the world has that got to do with really worship? Notice verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Remember how Michael preached two weeks ago as he introduced this idea this, this quarter? where we talk about worship, it literally means kissing, bowing down before them, so you're kissing the ring, or you're kissing their feet, or something along those lines. What he's saying is, you will not worship any god, because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And he goes on to make sure that we understand how jealous he is. That the iniquity of the fathers... On the children, to the third and the fourth generation, to those who hate me. You hate me, not only are you going to suffer for it, your children and their children, they're going to pay for this. But yet this same person, he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and they keep my commandments. If you put me first, everything's going to be great for you. I'll be merciful to you. But if you put anything else before me, you are done. Who can make such demands of you? The person that freed you. The person that brought you out of that. The person that created you. They can demand such a thing out of you. And you know, I find it interesting that this wouldn't even be the most demanding thing to me personally. If you go over to the 34th chapter of the book of Exodus, I want you to think about another demand that he makes of them. I want you to notice, and I'm just going to pick up in the, in the reading in verse 23. Remember they had all these different feasts that they were supposed to keep year in and year out. And verse 23, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord your God the God of Israel. And what we learn is that if you were going to be a faithful male to God, it meant three times a year you were leaving your house and you were going to Jerusalem to the house of the Lord. And you couldn't get on a plane. You couldn't ride in a nice air-conditioned vehicle in the summer. You couldn't get in a nice uh, heated vehicle in the winter. And you didn't get to work from home. You didn't have the internet. You couldn't log into your servers. And you couldn't go by yourself. You took your family with you. How difficult would that be? I've got to leave my fields for this time. I've got to give part of that. One of the feasts was you had to sacrifice some of the things you got in your field for that. And I've got to give you the best lamb. One without spot, one without blemish. I've got to do all of these things for you. And I've got to go through all of this effort for you. Yep. Because I am the Lord God, the God of Israel. Don't forget who I am. You owe me. And we understand that. Now, here's where we get to in the kingdom of God. We like to think about things being a little easier in the New Testament. That it's easier for you and I, right? Because we don't have to go to a certain city three times a year. We come once a week to a place like this. That is truthfully not that inconvenient to most of us. That is rather convenient for me a mile and a half away. Super convenient for Michael and Montel. Not so bad for even those of you that live an hour and 15, hour and a half away. Because we're here, it's easier. But I want you to think about, there's something that is said in the New Testament. The morning. We're talking about God is demanding of our worship. There's a word that is used, and Michael preached on this a couple of weeks ago, so I'm just going to illustrate I want you to go to John, the fourth chapter. I'm going to illustrate it in this way. That they had to go three times a year to Jerusalem to, a, to appear before God. But I want you to notice in verse uh, verse 20, when the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman asked the question to Jesus after she realizes that he's a prophet, says in verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say. That in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. I want you to go down to verse 24. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. This word must is a word that means it is necessary. It is demanded of you that you worship Him in such a way. Michael preached about that a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to talk about that. But what I want you to see is that we are commanded to worship just like they were. Except we don't have a physical location to go to. It is this different way. And so I want you to think about some other demands that are made. I want you to go to chapter 5 of the book of Acts. After Jesus has been raised from the dead, and the apostles have been going throughout Jerusalem preaching about Jesus and saying that you killed him, but God raised him from the dead, and they were performing miracles, and they were being thrown in prison, and then they were being released, being said, hey, don't you dare preach in his name anymore. But they said, we can't help but speak the things of which we've seen and which we've heard. And so they go back out and they're teaching in the name. And they say, man, didn't we, as they arrest him again, didn't we tell you not to go about and speak in this name? Yeah, you did. Look in verse 29 here of the book of Acts in chapter 5. He says, verse 28 actually, we strictly charge you, this is the rulers to them, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, And you intend to bring this man's blood on us. You're blaming us for his death. So, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Doesn't that sound like you shall have no other gods before me? You must obey God. You don't obey your coach over God. A coach is very demanding. I had some very demanding coaches. If you weren't at practice 10 minutes before, you were late. If you weren't at the game half an hour before, you didn't start. He said, man, that's ridiculous. I got homework to do. I got other things to do. Traffic. No. You don't do it. And you obeyed them. You followed them. So guess what happens on a night when there was a gospel meeting? And I had a basketball game that started at 8 p.m. And church started at 7 p.m. Guess what time I showed up? Like 8.15. And guess what I didn't do? I didn't play. Mom and Dad didn't make me do it. They gave me a choice when I was a young kid. Of are you going to go on this trip for school? Or are you going to go worship for the gospel of Eden? They didn't tell me which I was doing. They said, you you decide. That was a young age. I never had to make that decision again. But so many times we don't even think about that. We think, man, this coach demands me to be there or I don't play. Or this boss demands that I be there or I don't work. And I say, well, which one is more important? And that really gets into who our God demands a lot out of us. I want you to think about it from another way. There's another way that is used. It's not used in this word "must," but I want you to see it uh, in the Book of First Timothy. In First Timothy, chapter three, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's helping him to understand what needs to be done in the church. And I want you to notice the language in verse 14 of 1 Timothy chapter 3 that Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how you ought. And that's our same word as must. Here's how you ought to behave in The household of God. What is the household of God? Which is the church of the living God. A pillar and buttress of truth. I bring that up to say that there is a way in which the church must behave. It's not up to us. God has set that in order. God has set that in place. And it is what must be done. And that's what He's saying. I'm writing to you so that you would know what must be done in the household of God. Wouldn't that behoove us to know what must be done? Wouldn't that give us reason to look into what is done to see if that is right, to see if that is wrong, because it has to be done A certain way. But there are a lot of religious people out there that do things that they ought to do. I want you to go to Matthew 23. As you see people, they do things that the way the Lord would ask them to do it. They do good things. They do exactly what the Lord commands. But not everything that the Lord commands. I want you to see, in Matthew 23, it may not be the best example of this, but I think it might be. Matthew 23, Jesus is really grilling the scribes and the Pharisees, the hypocrites. Because they were very religious people. And they put on a show, and they made sure that everything was great on the outside. And as one of the illustrations that we are going to turn our attention to in verse 23, is that they took the small things very seriously. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin. All these little spices, all these little leaves, you take a tenth of them. Every one out of ten. I always think about this, and so forgive me for a second if I sidetrack. You remember when you see somebody, she loves me, she loves me not. You got the rose petals. Like, they just seem so tedious to me. But that seems the picture that pops in my mind as they've got a little garden plant in their yard. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two. That's a lot of work, and they're going through that over and over. My mother had dill uh, in her little garden back, and I mean, there's a lot of little dill stems. One, two, three. Like it's so tedious, and that's what they were doing. He said. You're doing this. You're tithing all these small little things. But here it is. And you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. You forgot the big things. And notice what he says here. These you ought to have done. You must have done that. You must have taken the deal and the cumin and counted that by ten. You had to do that, but you neglected the others. You do those without neglecting the others. See, sometimes what we're really good at is doing and making sure we got the small, finite little things right. We got that under control, these small little details. But we forget the bigger picture. We forget the things like love. And mercy. And justice. And he says, you can't do one without the other. So I want to close out very practically speaking. As we think about how God demands it be done in such a way, to which I'm not talking about this morning, what the way is, but that the point that he demands it of us, I want to think very practically for a second about things that we're also told we must do without neglecting the others. When you think about one of the first things that we must do in this church and people here, we would probably say this comes before all of the others, and maybe rightly so. I want you to go to John, the third chapter. And in John, the third chapter... Man comes to Jesus, and Jesus tells him in verse 7, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Jesus said, man isn't born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. He says in verse 7, don't wonder, don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born again. Michael preached a sermon on that not too long ago, too, right? About being born again means being baptized into Jesus Christ, immersed into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And we would say yes, and I would say yes. But I want you to notice another thing that we would also probably say yes to. I want you to go to First Corinthians the fourteenth chapter. In First Corinthians fourteen, in a in a discussion. About spiritual gifts. About what are we supposed to do with them? The people that speak in tongues, do they, are they better off than the people who prophesy? Or do the people who prophesy, are they better off than the people that, that speak in tongues? Like, what are we supposed to do with all of this? And in chapter 14, as we're learning about, uh, worship when we are gathered together as a church, when the whole church is gathered, you would see such phrases used, that they would have people who would sing a song. They would have people who would say a prayer. They would have prophets who would stand up. They would have people who received a message from the Lord, and they were told, be silent. And then the women were told to keep silence in the church. And verse 34. But I want you to notice down at the end of verse 40, as he's listed all these different things that go on in their assembly, he says in verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. That's not our same word as must, but, and that's why I got it in italics there, the reason is because it still implies it has to be done decently and in order. And what that means in a nutshell is the order is not, okay, you got two songs of prayer, contribution. Well, in November you can change the contribution to Lord's Supper first and then. That's not the order that he's talking about. He's talking about hierarchy, the way in which God has set it up. And the truth is that when we are going to worship him, we must do it as he has ordered it. And we would say, Amen. But what about another one where we are commanded to do? Go to chapter 20 of the book of Acts. In verse 35. Paul uses himself as an example. To the Ephesian elders, he says, Man, you know how I have spent countless hours with you. I have labored with my hands uh, night and day. So in verse 33, he said, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I didn't want your money, and I didn't want your clothes. He said, but you yourselves know that these hands, and I can just picture him holding his hands, that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. I wasn't asking for a handout. I wasn't looking for it, but I was working. Why? Verse 35. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, We must help the weak. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. It is more blessed to give than to receive. How do you help the weak? He just said it's something you must do. It seems in this scenario, he's talking financially. It seems in this scenario, that's the first thing that that he's talking about, is when there's somebody who is weak and somebody who is in need, we must help them. And didn't you see that with the Christians in the first century in Acts chapter 2? They sold their possessions, the things that belonged to them, so that they could support their brothers and their sisters in Christ? Man, that puts me to shame. And it's our same word as you must be born again as... You must support help the weak. Don't neglect it. Don't do one without the other. And the final one that I want to point out this morning is in awe. I want you to go to Luke the 18th chapter. Jesus taught a parable. And it's a parable about that really uh, kind of goes to me. Uh, And I understand Pretty well as a human being, and the parable is about this. In verse one, he told them a parable to the effect, so that it might affect that they ought always to pray. It's our same word, but notice it's not it's just they would pray and not lose heart. What we must do is we must pray. But we must also not lose heart when we pray. So how does he instill that in us? He tells this parable. It says verse 2. In a certain city. City doesn't matter. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. That dude didn't care about anybody but himself. And there was a widow in that city. Who kept coming to him and saying, "Give me justice against my adversary." Kept coming to him. Parents, the kids keep coming. I already told you, you're not going, but they keep coming to you. She said, "Give me justice," and Jesus says in verse four, "For a while he refused, no." I'm not going to give you justice. And why he doesn't give justice doesn't even really matter. No, he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, like he understands that about himself. I'm not doing this for anybody but myself. He says, "Yeah, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice So that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The thing, the only thing that God cares about is leave me alone. He says, I'll give you your justice. Is that God? Just leave me alone? No, what is God? Verse 6. The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice? to His elect, to those who cry to Him day and night, will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? I think that ties directly to will he find people who prayed and did not lose heart? And that's what he is expecting. That's what we must be. And I'm telling you, that ain't easy to do. Because, man, it feels like a long time. God, I've been praying about this for days. God, I prayed about this a couple hours ago. God, I've been praying about this for years. God gives what we need. And what he's saying is what you must do, keep praying, don't doubt. Because when you doubt, as James 1 says, don't think you'll get anything. Don't expect anything. there's an unstable man. He's double-minded in all his ways. He can't. We must not lose heart. we got to hold on to those little things. But we got to do all of it. That's what we must do. Maybe this morning you must be born again. You've not entered into the kingdom of God. Or maybe you must start doing a little more that you keep abounding in doing good things as 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 1 would say. Whatever the case... Why don't we do what we're supposed to do and give God the worship that He demands? So anyway, won't we come now as we stand and as we sing?